The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the latest in the Witches of Carrie series, an anthology of zombie fiction and a novel of hard SF. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. A new clan is David Weber and Jane Linscold's latest entry in the Honorverse prequel, Star Kingdom series. Previous entries in the series are A Beautiful Friendship, Fire Season, and Tree Cat Wars. They all followed the adventures of Honor Harrington's several times great-grandmother, Stephanie Harrington, when she was a teenager. Stephanie's family moves to the planet Sphinx, where she meets an enigmatic tree cat named Lionheart, and the two soon find themselves caught up in all sorts of trouble. A new clan picks up where Tree Cat Wars left off. The series is aimed at young adult readers, but it will appeal to science fiction fans and folks who love a good story of all ages. This week, DJ Butler sat down with Weber and Linskold to discuss the series and a new clan. But first, the news. We're winding up the merry, merry month of May, and that means the June mass market paperbacks have hit bookstore shelves. Let's take a look. First up is The Shaman of Carries by Eric Flint and Dave Freer. Starship Captain Possert and the Witches of Carries must deal with a slaver culture that makes slaves feel happy to be in chains. And the youngest of the witches, the Leewit, begins to awaken to her full powers as a healer. Next up is the Black Tide Rising series anthology, We Shall Rise, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole. Stories set in the world of New York Times bestselling author John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series. Stories by Kevin J. Anderson, Brendan Dubois, Jody Lynn Nye, Michael Z. Williamson, Casey Azell, Mike Massa, Christopher L. Smith, Lydia Scherer, Jason Cordova, Brian Trent, Patrick Vanner, and Jamie Ibsen. And finally, we have Frontier by Patrick Childs. While on a routine search and rescue mission, Marshall Hunter and the crew of the Borman encounter deception and peril. The Borman itself becomes hopelessly disabled, while back in near-Earth orbit, cislunar space falls into chaos as critical satellites fail and valuable lunar mineral shipments disappear in transit. Facing an impossible choice between salvation and sacrifice, Marshall Hunter has to find a way to save both his crewmates and space-age civilization itself from an insidious foe. That's The Shaman of Carries, We Shall Rise, and Frontier, all available now in mass market paperback. Can't get enough of Anne McCaffrey? To celebrate the reprinting of The City Who Fought, we're offering ebook discounts on all our McCaffrey backlist. For the month of May, get $1 off every Anne McCaffrey novel we publish. Sale ends May 31st, and this discount is good wherever Bain ebooks are sold. 
And that's it for the news. Uh, hello, uh, this is Dave Butler. I'm uh, here with Jane Linsgold and David Weber to talk about their new novel, uh, The New Clan, A New Clan. <clears throat> it's now out in hardcover uh, and in all your favorite ebook formats, DRM free when you buy it at Bain Books, of course. Uh, Jane Linsgold is the award-winning New York Times bestselling author of over 30 novels, including the six-volume Firekeeper Saga, the two Athenor novels, and the three volumes uh, of the Breaking the Wall series, the Artemis Awakening series, and many more. Uh, she's also written in collaboration with David Weber, uh, Fire Season, The Tree Cat Wars, uh, and Roger Zelazny, Donner Jack, and Lord Demon. When she's not writing or reading, she's likely being ordered around by a variety of small animals. She lives in New Mexico. Uh, David Mark Weber is an American science fiction and fantasy author. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1952. <laughs> Uh, Weber and his wife Sharon live in Greenville, South Carolina, with, uh, I've learned today, uh, six cats uh, and a dog. Um, with a blue-collar science fiction-loving father, a college English teaching mother who also owned her own ad agency in the 70s, and a lifelong love for history, he was clearly predestined to perpetrate a whole host of military science fiction and fantasy novels and anthologies. Previously the owner of the small advertising and public relations agency he took over from his mother. He has written uh, science fiction full-time for 30 years. He's probably best known for his Honor Harrington series from Bain Books and his Safe Hold series from Tor. Uh, Jane and David, both of you, welcome very much to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so um, I enjoyed reading A New Clan quite a bit. Uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, I want to ask some sort of setup questions. Um, one of which may not be about the stories at all. I, I, I noticed, so this is book four in a series, right? Am I reading that right? Yes. And the first three came out fairly close to each other, back to back, uh, 2011 through 2013. And then we've had a gap of about nine years. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why there could be a gap. I guess my question is, is there a reason that's interesting to discuss? <laughs> Well, there, there, are, there are no reasons related to the storyline mm -hmm. uh, for the gap. Uh, there were a couple of things going on. And one was that we originally had a contract for, for three, which, we've, which we filled. Um, and Jane and I both wanted to come back and do more stories. But there was an awful lot on my plate. That's, we're getting into the period when I face planted into the floor in Atlanta and gave myself a concussion, which kind of knocked me off writing it all for like the better part of two years. Um, and then, of course, I was just getting over that when COVID came along, uh, which didn't help anything health wise. Uh, I, I, I dodged that bullet for about a year. <laughs> then I got COVID. Um, and I had a whole bunch of other projects that had harder deadlines than a contract that hadn't been written yet for additional books uh, in, in the Star Kingdom series. But we always wanted to come back to them. We always intended to. And we did, um, Jane did some uh, short fiction for um, the, um, next honor, the next Honorverse anthology uh which is our heroes uh, uh from from this well okay our heroes from a beautiful friendship really more than from this book since we have a lot more people in this one uh running around on griffin um 
doing geology stuff. <laughs> I was like, totally happy to leave that to Jane. You know, hi, Jane, go do geology. Um, well, what can I say? You know, uh, but um, yeah, it's it's been, I think it's been harder for Jane than it has for me to actually work on these books because I am so intimately familiar with the Honorverse and how it's all wired and where what we're doing in the Star Kingdom books is going to plug into what's already canon in the uh, Honor Harrington novels. And I'm also having to balance this against what's going on in the Manticore Ascendant novels, which are happening within 40 or 50 years of, of these books. So I'm juggling balls and it's hard on her sometimes to, to, for us to be on the same page to a degree mm -hmm. that gives her the comfort that she needs to, to work smoothly uh, on, on the books. Um, and we're trying to, to we're, I'm, I'm hoping, honest Jane, I'm really hoping uh, to give you a, <laughs> a much tighter, um, for us to work out a much tighter uh, outline for the next book. Yes. Let me, let me say in all fairness, um, Weber is, Weber and I are very different writers. We're really good friends, but we're very different in how we write. And I'm sort of, you know, the, the number line of intuitive plotter and outliner. I'm kind of so far out on the intuitive plotter line that um, for me, being handed a please fill in the blanks, uh, I get bored. And Weber is really terrific about trying to leave me some room in the middle so that my spark is lit and my enthusiasm for the story comes across. So he does meet, we're, we're very different types of writer and he really does uh, you know, not try and bully me into being something I'm not, but that, that and the fact that these are prequels can cause us some difficulties yeah. because um, sometimes we have to invent, you know, I'll come up with a technological thing I want to do that I think is perfectly reasonable. And he'll be like, we can't do that because there's no precedent for it in the later books. They're not doing it 300 years from now. <laughs> you know? so, yeah, and so, and I'm like, but, but, but to me, if you take, so it's, we've got a lot of challenges here that a lot of Weber's other collaborators don't face. And one of them is that these are prequels and they're not military prequels. Mm. We're dealing with the people on the ground. We're dealing with the settlers. We're dealing with their things. And we're dealing, I think these are the only ones of his books that deal with the backstage of tree cats living with each other in their culture to this extent. Oh, certainly to this extent, yeah. Yeah, and so um, and so we have to invent the wheel sometimes with things like that as well. So they're very they're very challenging books on a lot of levels. Well, um, there are there are also instances in which I've invented the wheel, but failed to share that with Jane because it is so firmly in in my visualization of the cosmic all for the honorverse that. I don't realize that it hasn't been given in canon anywhere or that I didn't, you know, uh, that I haven't specifically written it down in the tech Bible. 
Yeah, um, and there isn't a Bible for a lot of the stuff we're doing. For what we're doing now, there isn't. I've had to be, I've been putting some together. For example, I had to go back and I did a chart of when the seasons break on Sphinx because we had we had a problem there. So I had to go back. I found this wonderful, wonderful piece of software that will let you determine what any date is by the number of days between it. And I know how long each season is in Sphinxian days, which means I can calculate how long it is in Earth days, which means I can calculate. So I have this, you know, it's just, I think I got like a 25, 30 year span of, of the seasons plotted out right. when they shift, when they change. And, and just, that's, yeah, I was going to say really that. Important. Yeah, it is. For it is. As well as this, yeah, go, Jane. Yeah, we're on the ground. And Stephanie is a ranger. She's, we can't do books that are written from the point of view of Stephanie and her people and just sort of gloss over what time of year it is because these are people who, you know, it's not just a question of is it a story set when uh, it's forest fire season. Oh, it's the, it's the after ramifications of having major forest fires and drought. Yeah. Um, and by ranger, you mean park ranger. She's not a command. forest, forest yeah, ranger, forest, not park forest, ranger. Forest ranger with a yeah. gun. Yeah, with a really big gun. <laughs> a little person with a big gun. I think she, I really think Weber subconsciously was putting Sharon in when he, uh, when to he some, invented Stephanie. To, to, to some extent, to some little extent. Little person, big gun. Well, really the other big. side, the other yeah. side of it was that Honor is six feet, two inches tall. Okay, and her mom is is little bitty, like five one or something. Um, and um, I wanted, I I didn't want Stephanie, the very first person to adopt a tree cat, to be a physical pro, pre clone of 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 uh, honor. Although she does have the same hair, basically, if you take a look at it, they both have that curly mop when it's, you know, not uh, tamed. Um, but yeah, it's um, the one real thing that I regret about the Honor Harrington novels is that so many of them take place either fully in space or in an artificial habitat or whatever. Honor loves her homeworld, okay? She loves getting out in the woods and, and all the rest of it, but I have very limited opportunity in the novels about the war against Haven and whatnot to do scenes set there. So what this allows is for us to share with the reader uh, more of the flavor of Sphinx. I've done this in short fiction too when I've been able to put them out, you know, into the, into the forests and, and whatnot of Sphinx. But the other thing is that what Stephanie and Honor both share in common, besides tree cats, um, is that they both have a very intense sense of responsibility. And they are both incredibly protective of the things that are, that they care about that are important to them, the people, in Stephanie's case, her environment, uh, the, 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 what she's coming to realize are the native sentience of, of Sphinx. Um, 
and I don't know how many people who are going to be watching this know that eventually Dame Stephanie Harrington, the commander of the Sphinx Forestry Service, um, will be instrumental in uh, drafting the Ninth uh, Amendment to the uh, Constitution of the Star Kingdom, which specifically recognizes the tree cats as the native sentient species of Sphinx and guarantees them one third of the planetary surface to be maintained in unimproved virgin forest condition for them. Um, that's who she is. And that's who Jane and I have been writing about now for, for four books, her and some pretty extraordinary other young folks who are not as young as they were when we first met them. Stephanie was um, 11 at the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I think she was either 12 or 13, 13, I think at the end of it. Um, but, uh, and the other thing is that I know where Stephanie and her parents fit into the history of the Harrington clan. Okay, and so one of the things that we have to be constantly aware of is how we're going to adjust to make sure that we hit those mileposts uh, along the way. Um, I think in some respects, I think in some respects that's harder uh, on Jane too, because I've got those mileposts so firmly in mind. They were part of when I created the Honorverse in the first place, this was part of honors sort of genealogical backstory uh, that was implicit in what I was going to be doing with her and the Mason alignment and, and everything else. Um, and it's not something that is, it's not, a lot of it are not the things that you expect to spring to mind in books which are written as YAs, but also for an adult market if you didn't already know that they had to be there. Does that make sense? So what's okay. in Yeah, it's... It's complicated. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's the way to put it. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. We've got, we've got, really, we have two stories going on here. We have whatever is the inherent story that is that novel, and we've got the other story, which is the larger epic of the honorverse. Mm -hmm. And we need to be faithful to both of those. And although I've known Weber long enough, um, we met when he had one and a half published novels and I had one published short story. So you can, you can use that to try and figure out how long without either of us uh, admitting it. But um, I've known him long enough to absolutely know that he's had a lot of this stuff in between his ears. But the problem is he hasn't necessarily put it down on paper in a consistent fashion and it has evolved. Yeah. When we were starting with the tree cats, um, he sent me a document he had written about tree cats, but it had never really been updated. And so there were various points that we had to, I had to stop and say, okay, bud, We've got this here and we've got this here. Which one is it? And then we would come up with canon. But again, um, these are small points. These aren't the mega points. But when you're writing a novel, those small points come up. 
Well, and and to to the point that Jane was making about where they fit into the greater, if you will, story arc of the Honorverse. The stories that we're writing now are the ones that establish the relationship between humans and tree cats going forward. It's also the point at which those who are fighting for the tree cats recognition as the as the fully sentient beings that they are are facing the greatest single threat to the tree cats future and that has to be worked in in the background but at the same time each book needs to have its own uh conflict in terms of uh, problem solution, if nothing else, that isn't just lost in the underbrush of, well, we are establishing that there's a problem here where the tree cats are threatened. Um, so yeah, it is. And I have to say that uh, Eric Flint and I just finished doing To End in Fire. And we ran into problems that <laughs> in some respect are similar to what Jane and I are talking about here, but in, in our case, in that case of that book, it was kind of on steroids because Jane and I by now have established where the books fall and, and, and how we need to approach them, okay? Uh, we're still working on, on getting everything tweaked to where we want it. Uh, but Eric and I had a smoothly established procedure for the collaborations that he and I had done in the Honorverse because they were he would write his portion of the book first, and then I would write my portion of it, and all of them followed along behind what you might call the 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 wave front of the greater storyline. They were filling in detail backstory about behind where where the timeline had advanced to in, in the solo books. Well, in this instance, we were advancing beyond where the solo books ended. And so the way that we had done it in the past with Eric writing his part first, just didn't really work. Uh, and part of it too was that he had to use a lot of my solo characters as viewpoint characters and they weren't his characters and so they were as the person who who built them they were reacting in ways that i knew they wouldn't have reacted and they were plot points totally you know understandable okay but it was one more thing that had to had to be adjusted and then uh he got sick and i had covid and we literally finished that book up sending in pages in tranches while they were being copy edited at the other end. And Jane and I have not had that problem yet. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to ensure that you don't have that problem, Jane. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the things, you know, to, to leave the Honorverse aside and talk a little bit about the collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I think Weber and I have going for us, for one thing, I call him Weber because when I met him, there were way too many Davids in my life. And I need, you know, he was Weber and he stayed Weber. Um, you know, so we're, we're old buddies. 
Um, and this means, I think there's a degree of belief that neither of us want to drive the other two up the wall. Um, my, one of my favorite anecdotes, and, and this is tales out of school, but it won't embarrass anybody, is we were having an email correspondence about how to work out a plot point that wasn't working. And I have an email coming from him and he's like, you know, it, the email says, basically, I could still find the text somewhere probably. It says, yeah, I think we can work this out. And then all of a sudden it changes. It goes, no, no, you absolutely can't do that. You absolutely, this is, no, this is absolutely not. Uh, and I'm looking at it and my husband was working at home and, and I said to Jim, I said, I think Weber's lost his mind. I'm gonna pick up the phone and find out what's going on here. And what happened is he uses voice activated software. He had turned it off. When the kids came in to ask him a question, it was obviously a question where daddy parental authority had to come on. And uh, he had said something that had reactivated his voice activated software. He then looked at the screen, said, oh, this email looks like it's done, sent it. But if we hadn't had that level of trust, can you imagine how I would have felt to be told, no, no, absolutely not. You can't do that. Okay, but I, I got to I got to tell you another story. Uh, this has nothing to do with Jane, but it's okay. Sharon is uh, a huge Supernatural fan. Okay. Okay. So she wanted me to watch Supernatural. Now I don't watch TV on a regular basis. I tend to binge watch, you know, after the fact. But I had really liked the series Person of Interest. So I told her, "All right, I'll watch Supernatural if you watch Person of Interest." Well, I didn't realize that there were already like. 12 seasons of supernatural versus a total of five of person of interest but she was like okay we can do that you know but anyway so i'm sitting out here i'm working in the office and my my uh phone buzzes and i look down and sharon and she's watching an episode of person of interest she says they shot elias and i said yep and she said is he dead i said i don't know is he she said you're not going to tell me I said, no, I'm not. She said, I hate you. I said, I know, you know. So, you know, she's going on in the episode and she, she says, she says, they really killed him, didn't they? I said, I don't know, do they? She said, I hate you even more, you know, kind of thing. So, did, you know, there's like three or four more of those exchanges. Well, what we didn't realize was that she had texted me on a thread that the kids were on. So the girls come home from school and they go upstairs. They says, mom. And she says, yes. Are you and dad getting a divorce? And she's like, what are you talking about? She said, well, you said you hate him. You hate him so much. And she's like, no, no, no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. So, you know, the, 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 <laughs> yeah, the, the perils of electronic correspondence, you know, it's just. Um, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and I do have to be careful when I'm using Dragon because if I tell it, listen to me, it switches back on, okay? Um, unless I've just completely killed the mic. And uh, so sometimes it will think I said, listen to me or something like that when I didn't think I said that. And I'll look down and realize that I have like 250, 300 words of a phone conversation transcribed into the middle of the chapter I was working on. Well, there's a solution to that. 
Yes. Don't talk so much. No, no, I'm sorry. That's not a solution. Okay, that is more of a hypothetical, wishful <laughs> kind of solution. Okay, you know. Huh. So, anyway. so this is interesting. So when you started working on this, so back in 2010 or something, uh, you saw this as um, this. So, so let's let's in case anyone is new to the honorverse, let's just be explicit here. This is some 300 years before the honorverse. Mm -hmm. We're in the Manticore home system, right? Sphinx is a planet that orbits the Manticore binary stars. It's, it's one of three, yes. Okay. And, uh, but it's 300 years before. Well, that's why it's one of three habitable planets. I think there's 30 or something total, but okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And so Stephanie is, is, as honors ancestor, a number of generations in the future. Yeah. Um, now, so, so did you plan that? Was the series from the beginning? Hey, listen, we got to do a three book deal, but we're going to do some number of books up to the point where Steph Dame Stephanie amends the constitution? Well, the first novel is actually a solo novel. Okay. Um, I had done uh, a short story, uh, A Beautiful Friendship, which was Stephanie meeting uh, uh, Climbs Quickly, um, Lionheart, who, and, and how, how the tree cats are discovered. I did it for one of the anthologies because it was a, it was a pretty, it's a pretty essential building block for how that whole relationship starts. One of my favorites. I really like it. Yeah. And then I expanded it into uh, a novel. And it was, it's really the first book that I ever wrote specifically thinking of it in, in YA terms. And I am of the Heinlein school of how you write young adult novels. You know, I don't know if you know what his response to the question was, bearing in mind that this was, I think, in the 60s or some point. Uh, they asked him, how do you write uh, a book for younger readers? And he said, exactly the way you do for adult readers, and then you leave out the cussing and the sex. Okay. And, and Jane and I both, one of the things that always bugged me about the Harry Potter books is that for the first three or four books, every single adult is either malevolent or an idiot so that they can be saved by the nine-year-olds, okay? Um, and I have very, very, very strong feelings about like dystopian YA and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so in A Beautiful Friendship, I wanted to write a book in which youthful protagonists have plenty of agency. They can accomplish a whole bunch of things, uh, they can make a whole bunch of mistakes. Stephanie almost gets herself killed uh, uh, basically because she knows best, okay? Um, but at the same time, the adults involved uh, in her life are competent adults and they understand the space that they have to give to a kid who has the, the level of intelligence and the level of independence and the, the sense of responsibility that they've built into her to this point. Um, and that's important to me, okay? Um, now, most of the villains have been um, malevolent, malevolent, malevolent-ish, <laughs> uh, adults, I suppose. Um, although, I, Jane, I'm thinking about rehabilitating Dr. Bolgio. 
I've seriously, I've got a novel that I'm looking at here and I'm thinking about rehabilitating him when he gets out of jail. He stays in the Star Kingdom and his family becomes a pillar of the Navy, you know, kind of thing. But, um, so that was, huh? It's your character. <laughs> but that, that's how A Beautiful Friendship was conceived of and written. Okay, then we got into the, the next two. Uh, which are the collaborations with Jane. Um, and there's a lot more Jane in their DNA than there was in the solo novel that I wrote without her. Yeah, um, I, was in the, I, was, I was backstage on the solo novel. He sent me the manuscript and I gave him feedback because he said, if you're going to have to build from here, I don't want to put anything in here that you absolutely hate and can't live with. Um, so I've, I've, I was backstage on A Beautiful Friendship. It's definitely his book, mm -hmm. but he gave me the opportunity to give feedback at an earlier stage. Yeah. And I think some of, the, some of the younger characters were introduced sooner by my, my prompting at that point. That, 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 certainly, that certainly sounds like what probably <laughs> oh, happened. <laughs> Now, in um, A New Clan, I did a, um, a novella, a short story novella, for the uh, Give Me Liberty Con anthology that Liberty Con uh, basically publishes as a memorial to Tim Bolgio. Um, and that was the starting point for a slew of new characters who were introduced into, into this book. Um, Jane is the one who came up with the uh, the mushrooms. Okay, um, she's been um, she's been pushing uh, me to uh, expand the the texture, I guess, of the of the ecology, if you will, of of the books. Um, you know, I've crown oaks and picket you know, all that kind of stuff I had in there, but I hadn't really thought about fungi. Um, and I she's like, fungi. I know you do. And they were really, really cool. They're a really good addition. I just hadn't, if you pardon the expression, gotten down into the mushrooms when I was designing the, the ecology. Um, and some of the same thing happened in your, um, your Griffin short story. Um, we had to kind of work out what the the unobtainium that they were finding in that book was because it needed to be something that would be like important uh, kind of thing. Um, but that's what happens in uh, in collaborations is the the input of the two authors working together produces something that neither of them would have thought about solely on his or her own. Um, and I, like I say, I think it's, it's harder for Jane because the honor verse is really my sandbox. Um, and so many of its pillars are, are, are firmly established that we have to look at what we can, which game rooms we can build onto the existing house. Uh, in in some cases uh, uh, to make it work. Um, 
one of the one of the things that we're able to look at in these books is and i've been able to do that in some of the of the the honor novels as well um and in some of the later honor novels to be honest it's text been texturalized texturized texturized by what we've done uh in the star kingdom books jane um is the fact that tree cats literally have no concept of a spoken or a written language or even of words when they first meet humans that they're they they do the they exchange actual information packets without the need to differentiate so they have all these they keep saying flying things this and that and the other it's because they have a complete gestalt of the concept that they're exchanging with one another but they don't have a name for it if if you see what i'm saying um and so make very interesting graphic novels because then you could do tree cat speech with like image bubbles mm -hmm. rather than being limited by words it would, it would yeah you'd have to be really careful about how you did that though because you'd lose so much syntax um mm -hmm. but yeah. but see that's part of the problem okay is that for the tree cats all of the syntax is subsumed into the packet that they're exchanging and then you add to that the fact that they're that they're empaths that they literally can feel one another's emotions which makes it impossible for someone to consciously lie undetected to them okay um and so when they're talking about the mouth noises that stephanie and her friends are making you know just making the leap to the fact that lionheart is the is is her designation for climbs quickly it's an enormous intellectual jump for them to make but much greater i think than a lot of readers realize jane and i have tried to 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 make this evident as we go along but it is a huge conceptual leap for somebody who never even thought in differentiated words of language at all to grasp the concept of language uh, and that's why it takes another 300 years before they make the breakthrough into using ASL to, to actually communicate with the humans uh, around them two-way. Um, and one thing that the tree cats haven't discovered yet in, uh, where Jane and I are in the books is how much longer lived tree cats are than humans tree cats will live 200 250 years humans obviously won't and when climbs quickly and stephanie bonded neither climbs quickly nor his his uh his memory singer sister understood that even though stephanie was only like 12 that they'd have maybe 80 years 90 years together outside and that like a great many mated pairs of tree cats, when the human half of the partnership dies, the, the, the tree cat half follows, okay? And so by honors time, the tree cats understand that entirely and they still continue to make the bonds because of what it offers to, to the two species. Um, and that too is something that 
is a vital part of the subtext as far as I'm concerned that I'm not sure all readers pick up on. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But, and unfortunately, where the story arc that Jane and I have planned here for these books is going to terminate well before Stephanie's age would become an issue. So we won't be able to deal with it there. But Jane, I'm thinking of an absolute, won't be a dry eye in the house story for Dame Stephanie saying goodbye to Climbs Quickly. Okay. You get to write that one. I've had too many people die on me this last year. I, I don't oh, think yeah. I that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's... So that's interesting. So the, 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 the moment, like, on that path of the developing relationship between the species, right? The mm -hmm. moment where we're at in a new clan, uh, there's a there's a there's a group of youth. Now Stephanie must be, I'm not sure we say her age, but she must be within speeding distance of 18, right? She's no no she turns 16 at the end of the book. It's the, okay. the book ends yeah. with her 16th birthday oh, yeah. party. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. We need we need to get to about age 19 okay. by the end of the of the story arc we're working on because there's a rather dramatic shift in Stephanie's life at that point that I think is the logical bookend uh for the stories we're telling that doesn't mean there won't be more stephanie and and climbs quickly stories what i'm saying is that's the projected endpoint for this particular story arc yeah. but in any case you were saying yeah so, so the moment we're at now is there's a there's a group of young people uh that are, have each bonded to a tree cant right mm -hmm. but it's a pretty small group and they and they have an awareness that the tree cats are sentient but by and large, that's not a public uh, understanding or not a public view, right? right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's where the, you know, why we kind of coined the term the great tree cat conspiracy, because there are reasons in this time period 300 years earlier where it would actually be dangerous for the tree cats for it to be revealed. Um, it's a really, I mean, it's a really delicate juggling act because on the yes. one hand, we're not doing, let's, you know, Weber wants to avoid the whole, let's put them on a reservation thing. Mm -hmm. um, and yet on the flip side, uh, it, it's, it's complex. It is. And the, it's made worse by the fact that the tree cats have no written or spoken language. They're the first species of actual telepaths, functional telepaths that humanity has encountered. And so they have no written records. They do have Neolithic tools that, that they make, uh, flint knives. That's one of the characters in uh, A New Clan is the, the, was the master flint knapper for his clan before he had to leave it. Um, and they weave baskets and so forth. So on the one hand, you can say, yes, they're tool users. But on the other hand, you have people saying, yes, but, you know, how can we, you can't communicate with them, you know, you can, you know, and, and the, the people who have been adopted, who have bonded to tree cats, realize by this point very clearly that at the very least, they are telepathic. 
okay because they obviously can sense the emotions of their human partners they can tell when they're in distress they can they can come to their aid they can try to get help for them etc et but they still can't demonstrate their actual intelligence and they are thinking specifically of a particular planet in which humans arrived on the planet and missed the fact that there was a sentient race, an amphibious race that built its, uh, its, uh, its homes underwater for security. And when the people who had settled the planet and who had financial interests and et cetera were found out about it, because this hadn't been ruled a sentient species yet they declared they weren't and the local and the local sentients were basically hunted into extinction before anybody and, could intervene you know i i don't i'm married to an anthropologist um and so you know the whole fact that humans are humans are in the honorverse even in Stephanie's day, still defining sentience by human terms is uh, a point my you know my back fur goes up on um, because being married to an anthropologist, you know, tool use you you you've defined that they have pottery mm -hmm. and uh, and even even pottery wheels. And one of the notes you gave me that's actually fairly high tech. Yeah. Um, so the fact that the humans are stubbornly insisting on, you know, no, to be to be acknowledged as human, you've got to walk, you've got to talk our talk uh, well, is, is, a, is a challenge. Yeah. Well, and part of the problem, too, is that what we're talking about here in a lot of ways isn't what a fair-minded person would conclude looking at the technology. What we're looking at here is what would someone with an ulterior motive use right. as their arguing points to say, no, no, these are just very clever animals. Chimpanzees use sticks back on earth. Those are tools, you know, uh, et cetera. So one of the, one of the central uh, aspects of these books is the morality of human tree cat interaction. Um, you know, I'm not, I never set out to write a, a, a tree hugger series, okay? I grew up uh, on 80 acres of woodlot, okay? Um, I loved the woods. I have a deep respect for the, for the, the, the natural environment. But what I was dealing with here was not, well, we must preclude any exploitation of the virgin wilderness. It was, we must protect the, and respect the virgin wilderness. We must preserve virgin wilderness. We must use our habitat wisely. Is one of the is one of the core aspects of it, and a part of using it wisely and respecting it is respecting what lives in it. Okay, whether it's sentient or not. I mean, there's a that when um, when honor meets um, Nimitz many years later, she's a, 
couple of years older than Stephanie was. And um, she winds up rescuing Nimitz and his litter mate from a pair of peak bears um, who are huge, like Kodiak sized kind of thing. Um, and um, she deeply regrets killing these two uh, parent uh, uh, peak bears, but she had to if she was going to save Nimitz and and his brother, who she, she had not bonded with yet. This is where she meets him and and how they bond. To me, that sort of sums up a lot of the conundrum of living in and respecting your natural environment. Okay, it's one of the reasons that I was a deer hunter in in my youth is because I've seen the damage that deer herds overgrazing can inflict on their habitat and what that means for the members of the herd uh, as, as they move. I also did it because I like the taste of venison, but I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> but, but what I hope is coming across in these books is a realistic, bearing in mind that it's fiction, but a realistic, uh, understanding of the interaction between responsible humans and their natural environment in a way that will resonate with people who have been there and done that and that maybe might open some eyes for people who live in urban environments and really have no direct personal first-hand experience with nature you know red in tooth and claw uh kind of thing it's the purpose of the books from my perspective is not to preach a message it's not any kind of social awareness or or anything like that it's to tell a good story but to me telling a good story involves telling a story about people who have to make moral decisions and that's what stephanie and her friends are are confronted with in each book um, plus, we get to see the the maturation of the of the characters, uh, their growth, uh, and the degree to which they come to understand not just what they're up against in the Great Tree Cat Conspiracy, but gradually even Stephanie is going to figure out, you know, what's going on with Carl. <laughs> you know? She, she's she's just a little, you know. <laughs> well, uh, 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 what can I say? Uh, I'll, I'll I'll not. Uh... No, I I okay. Look, look, look. Okay, given how long it took me to propose to Sharon, you know, I'm I'm fine with this. I understand how it works. No, you know. If there's actually there is that I have to admit. Uh, I, at one point, Weber came to visit me when, and uh, he kept buying this this woman back home, Sharon, all these uh, all these presents, including some pretty elaborate ones and expensive ones. And I finally said, I thought you and Sharon weren't dating. Oh no, we're not. We're not. And I said, boy, if somebody came home with this many presents for me, I'd kind of figure maybe there was something. Going, oh no. Her, ex her exact words to me were, 
I wish I were one of your women, Weber. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've always, but um, but what I'm, but actually, on a more serious point, turning turning YA and everything else, one of the things I said to Weber is, I realize you've already written into Stephanie's back history who she marries. That's okay with me. I can work with that. But on the other hand. Uh, neither you or I had our first marriages, both of which were pretty young, work out. And to me, there's a really dangerous aspect in a lot of middle grade and YA fiction that you meet your first true love at, you know, 11 or 12. And that's it. Everything's perfect. And I think it, I, it's, an, it's a message I didn't really want to continue to promulgate. It worries me. When, that when, when Jane wrote in honor, I mean, honor, Stephanie's first real romantic involvement, which wasn't with Carl. Okay. I was like, okay, this, you know, this, this works. Okay. Because I had never envisioned her saying, yeah, okay. It's kind of like when honor meets uh, Paul Tankersley, who is going to become her first deep, intense love. She's kind of like, you know what, you work for that asshole Pavel Young, you know, I'll be polite to you, you know, kind of thing. And she meets Hamish Alexander in the second book in the series. And it's not until like book 11 or 12 that she realizes, you know, how she actually, how she actually has come to feel about him. So I didn't have any problem with how long this took, but I needed to get Carl into the picture early. Uh, so that he'd be there for it to happen, if you see what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, it's just, it's, I really, I really, Weber talked about not liking young adult and middle grade books where all the adults are either evil or stupid. And I don't like the constant emphasis that you're going to find, you know, you can never fall in love except once. And... <clears throat> You're you know, young and you'll know when it happens. And, you're young, you'll yeah. know what happens. Lightning strikes. It sure does sometimes. My Aunt Connie met her first sweetie in high school and they were married until he died. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, a lot of, more times it doesn't happen. And yet I think it puts a pressure, especially, and this is, this is me speaking as a woman, it puts more pressure on women to feel they're a failure if they can't make that first relationship work because so much romance is, the guy has had somebody else he was in love with. He might've even been married before, et cetera. But for the girl, it's one guy, one time. So if you don't, you're a failure. Yeah. But the I, challenge, I'm gonna interrupt you, babe. No, go. The, the challenge for Stephanie that Weber gave us is because she has Lionheart, and that telepathy, if Stephanie was gonna fall for a guy, he had to be basically a good person because Lionheart would never let her get close to somebody who was a bad person. So Stephanie's first sweetie who is introduced in fire season and who becomes a recurring character is really a good guy. And I think that's also another good mess you know again i don't want it to be a message but it's a good example to be out there neither you nor your first sweetie need to be bad people for it not to work out 
And something that uh, works out, uh, is starting to work out in a new clan is that just because you're an idiot at 15 doesn't mean that you have to stay that way. I'm thinking about Trudy here oh, yes. um, and the growth that she has versus the growth that Stan doesn't have um, uh, along the way. One of the themes that has always been important to me in my writing is what I think of as the redemptive arc um, in which, uh, for example, uh, in um, Insurrection, Steve White and my very first novel, Oscar Dieter, uh, is really he's responsible for the murder of uh, a politician that he respects deeply. He doesn't have anything to do with it. He tries to stop it, but his actions are what set it in motion. And he'd always been sort of a go along to get along kind of guy. Um, and by the end of the book, he is the, the effectively the prime minister of the, of the Terran Federation. And he is actively working to make the split between the Terran Federation and the Terran Republic final and permanent because he owes it to the, to, the, to the people involved. And he sees how ugly it's going to be if it ends any other way. Um, now, Trudy is not that dramatic a case of character growth yet, but also Stephanie's character growth and being able to look at Trudy and say, you know, this is the one that I really wanted to bust in the nose repeatedly when we were younger, that she's actually a decent human being. Um, one, of, one of the problems that Stephanie has is that she's at least four or five years older than her age, I think. Well, yes and no. I'm not talking about emotionally. Okay, I'm talking about intellectually in terms of her world horizon. Okay, now there's another factor which is going on in the backs of Jane and mine's mind. I think maybe more in the back of my mind than the back of Jane's mind because it's integral to what's going on here. Stephanie is a genie. She's genetically modified to, to uh, live an, in a heavy gravity environment. And unbeknownst to her, there are some additional modifications that have been incorporated into her genealogical line. And one of them is what helps to account for Honor Harrington's temper in the later books. Okay, the, the, the propensity to, as Hamish Alexander tells her on the first occasion, settle problems with direct action. Um, you know, it's just like, well, if I just hit this guy in the, in the head, knock him unconscious, then the problem will be solved by the time he wakes up, go for it. You know, this doesn't work when the person you're hitting in the head is the envoy the crown has sent to negotiate the alliance. Okay. Um, it did work out actually in honor's case, but that's because God in the form of the author was on her side, but that's another factor that's going on in the back of my brain when I look at what Stephanie is doing in the books that we're writing now, because it has to key into that. It's not a controlling element of her character by any means, okay, but it is definitely a factor in her makeup. And yes. I was just going to say, I completely understand this because I have a temper. Uh, you probably... I will we'll leave the context out, but I don't know if you remember a phone call where I said to you, would you please remind me why we don't kill our enemies? 
And I said, because disposing of the bodies is a problem. I do remember that conversation. And you also also followed up by saying, and besides, I really wouldn't want to come and visit you in prison. (laughs) That's right. Orange is not your color. (laughs) Yeah. So, So I actually have no problem with Stephanie having a temper and having to deal with it. Um, I'm I'm happier with that than if she was, you know, unicorns and 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 hearts and flowers. Well, I, I, there's another reason why the Harrington clan in general gets along so well with the tree cats, and part of it actually does have to do with the genetic manipulation. Whether I ever get around to making that explicit in the books or not, that's one of those parts of the of the backstage that I have to have in my head, even if I don't get around to sharing it uh, with the readers. But one aspect of it is that almost all Harringtons believe in direct action. Okay, I mean, Tree Cat's view is that enemies come in two categories. Edible um, and non-edible. Well, no, <laughs> ones that have been dealt with and ones that are still alive. <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty much how they see it. Um, and thanks to their telepathic sense, they very seldom make a mistake in identifying who an enemy is but they don't really understand this human what i can't kill him no you can't kill him why not he's a bad person but just take it from me you can't okay so they it's kind of like understanding that no you can't open the airlock on your own it's just one of those two-leg things you gotta you gotta learn to deal with now there is one other aspect of tree cats that hasn't really had to come front and center in what we've been doing here. But tree cats cannot handle advanced math. They, they just can't. Their, their brains don't work that way. <laughs> yeah, two plus two is five. Well, that's why they keep talking about hands of hands of hands when they're, when they're calculating things. Um, you know, tree cats will never understand algebra. All right, I'm sorry. <laughs> they're just going to go like, huh you know it's like okay i got written language but why does this letter you know and um so one of the things that i wanted the tree cats to be from the beginning is fully the intellectual equal of the humans with whom they 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 share their planet but different in a way that humans could human readers could understand and relate to, but which made them definitely not just humans in six-legged fursuits. Um, and uh, it's been sometimes a little bit of a, of a delicate balancing act because even if tree cats don't have a spoken language, the only way that Jane and I can communicate what they're thinking to the reader is to use written language but that's one reason tree cats never use contractions okay um which can be a pain uh but it's it's just part of how the language differentiation is one of the one of the differentiations we're trying to make um and it's it's hard i've written a lot of books that have aliens in them and i've usually i've tried to, to have the aliens in question be aliens. But there have to be those points of contiguity with the human readers or else the humans can't enter, enter into and understand what the aliens 
are doing and why they're doing it. Okay, you're just saying because they're aliens. I'm sorry for me as a storyteller that doesn't work. It never worked for me as a reader, either. Um, which doesn't mean that people can't have fully realized human characters who they suddenly have do something totally out of character that leaves me just as confused <laughs> as, as to what's going on here. Um, the level And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. So, the Great Horizon Hope finally crusked one, Viljo said, setting his tray down at the far end of the table and favoring Johnny with an off-cordial smile. Johnny dropped his eyes to his own lunch and said nothing, concentrating instead on the last few bites of his meal as the blood rushed to his face. Viljo's snide comments had become more and more frequent the past couple of days, and though Johnny was trying hard not to let the other get to him, the tension of the whole thing was becoming increasingly difficult to ignore. Afraid of doing anything that would brand him as overly sensitive, or worse, that would emphasize his frontier origins, he could only sit on his anger and hope Viljo would get tired of his verbal target practice. Though if he wasn't, perhaps others were. Across from Johnny, Halloran hunched over the table to eye Viljo. I didn't notice you walking away with high honors either, he said. Matter of fact, except for Imel, I think we all got our egos nicely trimmed for show out there. Sure, but Johnny's the one Bai always holds up like he was the ideal trainee. Haven't you noticed? I just wondered if he liked being demoted to mortal. Beside Viljo, Singh stirred in his seat. You're exaggerating rather badly, Roland. And even if you weren't, it would hardly be Johnny's fault. Oh, wouldn't it? Viljo snorted. Come on, you know as well as I do how this sort of favoritism works. Johnny's family's probably got some fixin' with Bai or even Mendro, and Bai's making sure they're getting their money's worth. And with that, the insults crossed a fine line, and Johnny abruptly had had enough. In a single smooth motion, he stood up and leaped over the table, dimly aware of his chair slamming backwards into the next table as he did so. He landed directly behind Viljo, who apparently, caught by surprise, was still seated, Johnny didn't wait for the other to respond. Grabbing a fistful of shirt, he hauled Viljo upright and spun him around. That's it, Viljo. That's the last brief dropping I'm going to take from you. Now back off, understand? Viljo eyed him calmly. My, my. So you have a temper after all. I suppose brief dropping is just one of those colorful expressions you use out there in the backwaters. That final smirk was too much. Letting go of Viljo's shirt, Johnny threw a punch at the other's face. 
it was a disaster. Not only did Viljo duck successfully out of the way, but with his servos providing unaccustomed speed to his swing, Johnny was thrown completely off balance and rammed his thigh hard into the table before he could recover. The pain fanned his anger into something white-hot, and with a snarl he twisted around and hurled another blow at Viljo. Again he missed, but even as his arm cocked for a third try, something pinioned it in midair. He shoved against the grip, succeeded only in losing his balance again. Easy, Johnny, easy, a voice murmured in his ear. And with that, the red haze abruptly vanished from his brain, and he found himself standing in a room full of silent Cobra trainees, his arms gripped solidly by Deutsch and Nofke, facing Viljo, who, completely unmarked, looked altogether too self-satisfied. He was still trying to sort it all out when the room's intercom monitor ordered him to report to Mendro's office. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to DJ Butler and praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber and Jane Linskold. We will have part two of their discussion next week. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.